Hey guys, Bato here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt. My guest today has a very interesting background. She's the founder of Backdoor Medicine, an organization dedicated to providing cannabis suppository education along with plant-based nutrition and plant-based medicine education. She earned her PhD in philosophy with a concentration in recovery of indigenous mind from the California State of Integral Studies. She was diagnosed with MS back in 2001 and is a proud mother of two daughters. Dr. Paula Noel McPhee, welcome to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thank you, Montel. Absolutely. It's great to talk to you. Let's talk a little bit about your background first and when you became interested in indigenous studies. Let's talk about that first. Yeah, well, you know, I grew up in Northeast Portland and I've always had lucid dreams my whole life. And I was visited by people in my dreams that I didn't know who they were, or where they came from. Uh, but I followed those dreams and wanted to pursue an academic degree. And I ended up in the anthropology department at CIIS. And I told them what I was about. And they said, well, I think you're better suited for this program over here. So I was the youngest person. I was 25 when I started the doctoral program. And it turns out it's a program. It's a decolonization program that was started by um, Dr. Apila Colorado, who's Iroquois in French. And she brought together traditional elders and healers with Western scientists and quantum physicists to kind of create a bridge between sciences and understanding. So I was admitted into this doctoral program and spent seven years as, you know, I started out as a, a rave kid from Oregon, a DJ, a promoter, uh, but followed my dreams. And I ended up in this doctoral program with some very esteemed um, indigenous scholars, um, Dr. Fanya Davis, who is Angela Davis's sister. She was a colleague in my program. Dr. Martina Wilshula, who's doing intergenerational trauma healing for native youth through Harvard. So I came into the program not really knowing why I was there, but I ended up six years later with a PhD. And the focus is the recovery of my indigenous mind specific to my bloodlines and my genealogies. But I'm also adopted, so it made it very tricky. So I had to learn some alternative ways of knowing and research methods um, that at one point ended us up at Morehouse College with Dr. Charles Finch. And he showed us uh, slides of a tribal brain surgery and it blew me away. It was like literally like seeing Jesus. I'd never seen anything like it, that there was another path to healing uh, that wasn't, you know, in the hospitals and in the clinics. So after completing my doctoral program, I was teaching at Portland State and I started having some symptoms. And then, you know, three months after my graduation in 2001, I was diagnosed with MS. Wow. Uh, and, and so you're, you're starting embarking on one path for <laughs> career and then you're starting on a lifeline path with MS. Yeah. Yeah. It happened at the same time. And had I not gone through that six year decolonization program, I would not have really been in the position I was when I was diagnosed with MS. Um, I distinctly remember walking into the neurology office and the neurologist poking me with a needle, which just, I wanted to knock him out for doing that. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you, it looks like you have multiple sclerosis. And I said, okay, well, what do I do? And he said, well, we have three therapies, drug A, B, or C. And I will never forget stopping in that office 
and looking around the room and there were all of these African artifacts in the room. And I swear they were all talking to me, telling me to get the F out of there mm -hmm. and find the path that I know to be true for what I'm dealing with. So I went to an MS group and everybody would just sit around talking about pharmaceutical drugs and the side effects of the pharmaceutical drugs. And I was like, I cannot, I can't, there's no way in for me here. So I went to a workshop and this gal said to me, you know, if you're not going to take the, the medications for MS, you need to meet Dr. Swank. And I had no clue who he was. Um, so somebody gave me his phone number and I gave him a call and I went up with my dad up to his house and embarked on a three-year adventure with him, uh, learning his research, uh, having him draw pictures, show the cause and the mechanism of the disease. So I literally went into the world's leading neurologist library, went right into his 55-year study, and he showed me what to do. And basically, it was just a, a way he had a protocol for navigating uh, nutrition. He called MS a nutritional disease, like stroke, diabetes, heart attack. He called it a disease of, of the vascular system. So he would, he would, you know, test people with a red cell mobility test for $25, look at their symptoms, put it together and give them a nutritional protocol. So I was at odds between the tribal traditional knowledge of um, indigenous people, what Western doctors were saying and what Dr. Swank was doing in between which was to just have a good fat oil balance of the body, eat proper nutrition, rest, which is hard for those of us with MS, I've discovered, and, um, you know, exercise. He, he was walking on his treadmill until he was 98 years old. So it really, he's, he's old school. But what he said to me, I will never forget that the drugs progress the disease. He said it's a nutritional disease. You can gain control over it with your nutrition if you follow the protocols and you live a sensible life. And 20, over 20 years later, here I am. Absolutely. Well, you know, we were diagnosed, you and I were diagnosed almost about the same time. How old were you when you were diagnosed? I'm sorry. I, don't want to get uh, I was 30. 30. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and what else did you learn from working with him? Well, it, on some level, I started to feel like I was about to blow a whistle. Because what I learned from him were some sort of really the old school ways of approaching wellness, which is to self-care. And he said with multiple sclerosis, there's an MS personality that we are very hard workers. We get focused on something we want to do and we won't stop and listen to our bodies until we override our bodies and something occurs. So he really got me to look at the, my, my MS personality and how I can pull it back a little bit and take care of those basic things, which, as you know, it sounds easy, diet, rest and exercise. But to actually change the lifestyle of, you know, being raised, choosing processed foods, choosing a sedentary lifestyle or not focusing on the basics over time, as you know, the body pays for it. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so now when when did you stumble upon the healing properties of cannabis? Well, to be honest, when I was about 17 years old, um, I started self-medicating. Um, I had anxiety and depression growing up and I'm adopted. So I had a lot going on 
in, in my upbringing. Um, and there are a lot of things, you know, going on in Portland in the 80s and 90s. And so I was just feeling a lot of stress and within that stress using cannabis. And I also went into the rave culture and the rave scene. We started rave parties here in Oregon. So I was very open to psychedelics and exploration. So, you know, cannabis has always been there. But then when I had children, um, I'm a single parent. And so I, you know, started looking at my life and thinking, well, gosh, I don't want to be an addict to something. So I put myself into rehab to learn the difference between smoking cannabis addictively or abusively and using it medicinally. And in that process, my brother was diagnosed with rectal cancer. So my research brain went into overdrive, looking and looking and looking. And I ended up finding Rick Simpson and all of his research and digging into cancer. But by the time I got there, my brother had passed away. And three weeks after he passed away, I gave birth to my second daughter. So in the complications of healing from childbirth, my body was not doing well. I tried Western medicine. I tried naturopathy. I tried Chinese medicine. And I had some fissures and they were not getting better. It was, it was torture. If it's, it was just torture. So out of my desperation, I went back online and I ended up finding a, a YouTube video of Tommy Chong talking about his prostate cancer and using suppositories for his prostate cancer. So my brain, the way it operates, I'm a visual thinker. I also have autism. So my visual brain takes over. And I just thought, what if I used a suppository made with cannabis to heal my fissure? So I took a straw and I made a, you know, a makeshift suppository. And in two days, my fissure was significantly better. So I started talking to the naturopaths around town, um, putting two and two together, but also with MS, um, I have a suppository mold that I've used for a very long time, but it has these screws. And when my hands are stiff or they're not working properly, it's, I had to use like a something to jam this open. So my brain just started thinking more and more. And I ended up coming up with an invention or an innovation of the current suppository mold. And my business is, I'm, I'm very proud to say I'm part of the Native American Business Chamber here in Portland. And I'm also um, part of the Native American Youth and Family Association. So they directed me toward a patent program with my idea. And I ended up getting into the patent program at Lewis and Clark. And with a trademark and a patent, I think I spent maybe $500 to, to come up with my invention for people with disabilities to be able to make our own medicine specifically geared toward cannabis suppositories. So it was really out of my brother, his suffering, out of my suffering, um, and having a research brain and always trying to figure out what to do. Um, I ended up with a, a, a patent for my invention and I'm now on the Oregon Cannabis Commission. I served for a couple of years, but I'm back pushing the forefront of research, uh, specifically with cannabis suppositories. Well, you know, now uh, let, let's let's dig in a little bit in the cannabis suppositories so people can understand that people don't recognize the fact that, you know, that area of your body is not only evacuates, but it also absorbs. Yeah. So explain that so, so people understand what's going on. Well, I mean... 
the the first part of it for me is that I got onto the internet. I started looking for suppository molds in history and time. And I ended up looking at a table in the apothecary at the Heidelberg Castle. And there was a suppository mold on the table. And I thought, okay, this has been used a lot longer than we're comfortable with. So I find myself comfortable with it because I was suffering and I didn't care what it took to feel better. So I ended up exploring suppository molds in time and then just thinking about, you know, what would it do if it went into the body? There were no research studies for me to go on. And as an indigenous scientist, I don't solely rely on Western science clinical studies. So I, as the research subject, thought I would see what would happen if I would start using cannabis suppositories to, na to navigate my pain and my discomfort, um, my neuropathy and all the things that I'm dealing with. So I started using suppositories maybe two or three times a day, and they would be anywhere between 100 and 200 milligrams per suppository. Now, you know, if somebody ate 200 milligrams, they would end up psychotic, probably in the ER. So in the base of the rectum, when it goes into the body, you only put it up to like really the first knuckle. To get a head high using a suppository, you would really have to get it up in there with your hands to get to the portal vein, which would deliver it to the liver, which would deliver it to the brain. So by putting it in at the base of the rectum, it goes directly into the bloodstream, which then takes its pathway to the neurotransmitters. So, you know, really from the neck down, people can find significant relief not just in pain and suffering, but we're also feeding the endocannabinoid system, which is a whole other you know, topic of conversation that I'm just beginning to understand. But that system, the endocannabinoid system, is probably the most important system in the body because it really you know, brings us homeostasis. And if our body can't find homeostasis, and then there's either a genetic mutation or an environmental thing going on or abuse or whatever is going on in the environment. That's just going to throw somebody off if their endocannabinoid system isn't being nourished and activated. So in my thinking, it just comes from using them over and over. But then people would find me. I would offer sliding scale consultations and show people how to make them themselves um, because it's really much more affordable to make it yourself and it's not as easy to make it yourself. There's, you know, finding the resources can be very challenging. Um, but for somebody like me, I've been using cannabis suppositories for 25 years and it's been discovered. I have genetic mutations, so I really can't take interferon, antidepressants, morphine, um, even pinene in cannabis. There's certain things that I, I just, they can't treat me. So doctors don't know what to do with me. And I'm at home, you know, drinking maple syrup infused tea and using my topicals and popping in my suppositories and, you know, using cannabis in multiple different applications, depending on what my symptoms are. And with, you know, I can put in 200 milligrams, it goes directly to the bloodstream, passes the liver on the first round and doesn't activate a head high. So to me, it's it to me, it really is rocket science. Do you do you have do you have on your website? I mean, first off, do you, on your website, do you tell people? You have people show them how to make it, or do you have a tutorial? What, what do you have? Well, I have a tutorial that was about six years old. But what I find is that everybody will take that recipe or that tutorial and have it be one size fits all. And I don't 
think that way. I think more holistically. So I can show people the basics of how to, you know, construct a suppository. But in terms of what symptoms you're dealing with, there's many factors to include when it comes to dosaging. Not everybody's going to need a 200 to 250 milligram suppository, depending on what you're dealing with. My, my children, you know, when they have menstrual cramps, they'll use sometimes use a suppository and use a topical. Somebody with, you know, stage four rectal cancer is going to use, you know, maybe under the tongue, use a suppository and a topical. So I don't necessarily, at this point, I haven't put anything online in terms of here's the formula, here's the recipe. Um, but I'm working on how I can share the knowledge of it. So and then have people do the research to know, like, where do I start? What's my dosage? And really, honestly, Montel, this process is about reconnecting the body with its own intuition and its own communication. Our bodies know how much cannabis we need in a dosage, but we just have to calm everything down and get to the point where we can hear ourselves and our bodies tell us what it needs. What are some of the other you know, discoveries that you found based on cannabis research? Well, I mean, it kind of goes a little bit more into like, you know, on a philosophical consciousness level. Through this research, I have found it vitally important, especially with my work on the Cannabis Commission, to find a bridge between Western science and indigenous science. Because Western science is so new and it doesn't quite acknowledge itself as being new. So when I'm in a, you know, in a meeting or I'm presenting my my research methodologies to doctors and scientists, they're pretty much blowing it off because anthropology has covered it all already. So in doing this work with cannabis and cannabis education, thankfully, I'm a trained in decolonization, but decolonization is on the forefront of everything I say and talk about. Explain exactly what decolonization means. Well, decolonization, when I started out researching it, I was finding it being talked about in, in like economic and historical ways, like, um, you know, slaves being brought from Africa, um, you know, the Irish going through a, a hunger genocide. There's these waves of genocide and colonization that have gone on for eons. And so this way of thinking about science this way of thinking about um, English is, is coming from a very Eurocentric worldview. And so decolonization will come in as a psychological process, how I define it, as a psychological process that helps dismantle superiority in thinking, that my scientific way is the way, or that my scientific way is the best. That's not really how indigenous science works. Indigenous science and native thinking includes nature and the environment and all living things in its considerations for, um, you know, presenting a, a research report. It's not just about clinical studies and placebo effect. It's actually about the communication that the patient might have with the plant and establishing that communication between the plant and the person. And why can't we communicate with the plants and the plant medicine like we used to? So my, my doctoral work is about, is it, it asks the question and answers the question of why are we disconnected? Why don't we know that this plant medicine can actually benefit us? And why do we go to drugs that can come really come through as toxic poisons? Why do we go down that path? So cannabis has given me a platform to really understand 
colonized mind, colonizing science. And that doesn't make it bad, but it has to have a bridge and a balance with where this Western science comes from, which is indigenous science. We all have ancestors. We all have genealogy. We all have tribes and clans. And for some of us, it's harder to make those connections than others. But when we do, and we come from that place of, or this place of scientific knowing, and we bridge it with Western science, then our capacity to understand what this plant medicine can do becomes so much greater because we're including indigenous knowledge and tribal healers next to the quantum physicists and the ethnobotanists and the anthropologists. It's about bridging the knowledge and bringing it together. And cannabis is a really incredible plant medicine that is aiding us to do this in science. I find what, kind of, what kind of resistance have you even found you've gotten from the cannabis community? Oh, I've been called a racist. I've been called a fraud. I've been called everything you can think of. And, and all it really does, Montel, is it shows where somebody is at within their own intergenerational trauma, within their own cognitive dissonance. When people speak and use words, um, it's powerful. And so if we're speaking in a hurtful and negative way, that's just coming from somebody who's suffering. So I find the deeper I go into this work, um, you know, the more that it psychologically triggers somebody that they're disconnected from who they are and where they come from, no matter what walk of life, you know, they, they navigate, it can bring up a lot of trauma and a lot of um, triggers. So I've kind of learned over the 26 years I've been doing this um, to focus my work more on systems and systems thinking than individual psychological processing. Um, I can't make somebody do the decolonization journey with their own ancestors, uh, but I can you know, share my journey and possibly inspire somebody else to look within themselves. But that's, you know, that's a tall order when somebody has trauma or somebody is suffering. Do you do you uh, utilize cannabis in any other way other than suppository? Do you actually do you smoke? Do you vape? Do you eat? Do you what do you do? Uh, well, my primary is is a topical. So I have a Levo uh, machine and I make actually my favorite is maple syrup. So uh, at night I'll drink some nighttime tea and I'll put some maple syrup in it. Or I'll wake up in the morning and have my coffee and I'll put some maple syrup in it. Along with cannabis? Yeah, it's infused. So it's an infused cannabis maple syrup. So I want my body to eat uh, the cannabis to nourish the endocannabinoid system. Then I use the topical when I have nerve pain or my muscles are not feeling good. If I have bruising, um, I'll use the suppository, you know, to get on an airplane. If I have to sit for six hours to go to Brooklyn, I'm going to use a suppository to relax my body so I'm not suffering when I get there. Um, I mean, I before I sit down for an interview, you know, I'll use a suppository. So I'm always using it to prevent my discomfort. Stay I'm ahead. using it to feed my system. The vascular system and the nervous system need food. So does the endocannabinoid system. And the best food for the endocannabinoid system is cannabis. So my thinking is if I'm eating it, I'm using tinctures, topicals, suppositories, smoking. I smoke it every day. Um, I tend not to vape because the the toxic sort of side effect, it gives me a sore throat. 
Certain strains I cannot utilize because pinene causes my throat to clench up and cough. Got so it. I have to watch certain terpenes. Um, but I use it in every form possible. I just made some peanut butter balls that, um, you know, that I enjoy eating at night to, to combat the insomnia. I mean, it's, it's that one plant. I, I jokingly call my topical, my Jesus juice, because that one plant can literally heal every condition that I'm dealing with, or that somebody comes at me with that this one plant in many different application forms can take care of all of my conditions and issues. And I, I just, I'm, I'm so humbled by that. Like our creator designed it so intelligently that the one thing that activates and really gets our endocannabinoid system humming is cannabis. Well, you know, when you try to at least enlighten those in the industry to your way of thinking, what's, what's their reaction? Well, when I, you know, on the Oregon Cannabis Commission, um, Anthony and, you know, the other people on the advising body, they're like, this is, they, they took my, my research framework, which is a bicultural research model, which allows indigenous science and Western science to coexist and work together. They immediately took in the model and started working with it to create a patient centric system. So we're, we're, we're really re- working how medical is in Oregon because measure recreational came in and wiped us down. So now we have an opportunity to rebuild and restructure medical and medical has sort of helped put me on the forefront of how do we redesign this in a holistic way. And people that have worked with vulnerable populations, low income, uh, native people, those who work within these populations completely understand what I'm talking about. Now, on a city level, I was part of a research team or a policy team for several months, and I got the boot. Now, I, I won't get into the politics of why I got the boot, but basically I was told by the city director that I'm too far ahead of where the chair is sitting, that he doesn't understand what I'm talking about. And I'm like, okay, that's okay. That's, that's not a place where I belong now. So then when I go over to, you know, research subcommittees or even with psilocybin being big in Oregon right now, um, there's, a, there's a, a call for alternative ways of approaching these things. But here in Oregon, we're just not quite sure how to do it. But yet at Morehouse College, back in the late 90s when I was visiting there in grad school, they were on the forefront of creating AIDS clinics, bridging Western doctors from Morehouse and traditional African healers to, to deal with AIDS and setting up clinics. So over here in Oregon, yes, we are on the forefront of doing something really cool. But in terms of like the bigger picture where I'm coming from, we've got a ways to go. So some circles grab onto me and say, yes, let's use this decolonizing approach. And some circles, they just, they don't know what to do. And that's okay. Um that's and okay. that, that that would be how you probably would look. It's not just Oregon. I think it would be all over the country. You know, we yeah. have now another three states have just now jumped on board the adult use train. But, you know, um, I, I, I kind of feel like the more and more we go down that path, that's more just an economic path. Right. People aren't really paying attention to the value of the plant. No. And our medical program went from 25000 to 18000 you know, it, it's like they're just 
at least in Oregon, there's an opportunity to restructure it. But when recreational came in, it just started putting, you know, this is how much medical patients can have. And this is how much, this is how we're supposed to use it. It just started to put all this regulation on something that we were very easily doing without all of that help. And then it became a money grab. You know, there's a lot of money going on in cannabis tax money. And so it's like, how do you bridge a medical need for people who are suffering, who can't afford the card to get the the cannabis at a price they can afford at a dispensary they can't afford. So my thinking is how can we create a patient centric program that allows the most vulnerable populations of people to be included in this knowledge? You know, it's like dangling carrots in front of people. There there is possibly things that can help you and your suffering, but you can't afford it. Sorry. Like that's not okay. That's not okay. How do you get the, you know, right now, I guess, in, in Vegas, I think in Vegas, they have the, one of the, the big uh, conventions are going on right this minute. I'm, I'm not participating in it this year, but because I've, I've really kind of become a little bit jaded with some of the industry discussion, because it all seems to just be more B2B rather than right. B2C. You know? right. and, and what we should be doing is concentrating on ensuring that the patient or the consumer understands what they're getting involved in. Well, yeah, Montel. And, you know, it, it, a huge part of it is education. I will just, I distinctly remember Dr. Swank and I having conversations around why people did not have the nutritional knowledge that they needed based on his 55 year study where 98% of the people that died in the study over 55 years died of natural causes, not of multiple sclerosis. Now, to me, I found that I, it's like I wanted to blow every whistle when he told me that. So I went into the MS community and I shared what path I took. And I also shared plant nutrition. And nine times or 10 times out of 10, people could, were not, the thinking was not even, the capacity to think that nutrition could actually move you out of your discomfort and disease was not there. So That's because they don't, they don't make money from. No, that's what doctors money from pharma. So they're not going to touch it. Look, as, as long as grains aren't giving them, you know, millions and millions of dollars worth of donation, I say right. grains meaning farmers, right. and the pharma is that's the route they're going to choose to go down. And it's it it breaks my. It's like I can't tell somebody you shouldn't do that. All I can do is meet people where they're at. And when people say, how are you doing so well? You're 53 years old. You've had MS for 20 years. You're a single parent. Like, how do you do it? I'm like, because I have the foundation of plant nutrition and plant medicine. Like every study that I looked at showed how plant nutrition is the basic diet for most of the elite athletes. Like it just, it's like things just started to make sense to me. But then when I would turn around and pay it forward, this research knowledge specifically to the MS community, there was so much pushback because of the things that people would have to let go of in order to get well. So I jumped out of the MS community and opened up my research knowledge to a broader group of people, people who suffer from nerve pain, insomnia, restless legs, muscle spasms. That goes beyond MS. So I started working with people that wanted to take an approach of using a more holistic way of thinking about dealing with diseases and conditions. And that's, that was just naturally where I went. And so that's the path that I've been, you know, 
treading is 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 one that has plants as a foundation. Do you have a website or how can people reach you? I do. Um, I'm on Instagram at Backdoor Medicine. And my website is also backdoormedicine.org. Gotcha. Gotcha. And now, I mean, we're just talking a little bit about the industry, but, you know, I mean, where do you think the industry will go in the next couple of years, considering the fact that it just looks like we're trying to figure out how to become more and more of a wreck country rather than what this all started with was providing medication to those who needed it? Well, I think that's the, the, the biggest part of the problem is the split in thinking. It's adult use and it's medical. And in my thinking, it's all the same. We all suffer from conditions. We're all dealing with stress, anxiety, depression, and insomnia and stress. So I, I'm not a big fan of splitting it into two different markets. I think that in the, in the forefront of Oregon, I would like to see the medical program become very strong and be a template for other medical programs. But I'm also concerned because there are a lot of people coming into Oregon that aren't from here. I mean, Jim Belushi came here, set up a farm, and all of a sudden he's an Oregonian. And that's what kind of bothers me is things like nectar and sort of the McDonald's of cannabis is moving in and luminous botanicals, one of the most old school craft products that helped countless medical patients giving patients three bottles a month at $80 for free. And the market wiped them out because they couldn't keep up with, you know, the, the, the McDonald's of cannabis. So Oregon has become a free market of anybody can do whatever they want. And now we're saturated with an industry that doesn't include small businesses. So I decided to still go forward and, and really bring through education and research. You know, it's mine isn't a money maker. I'm on disability and I do what I do because I have to do it. And if people find me, that's great. But really for me, the research and the education of why this plant is so vital and the different forms in which we can use it is so important that, you know, I, I feel like we need to continue the educational push and, you know, I'm a little blacklisted in the recreational party world. There, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not quite popular in that side of things because I'm very critical of it, and I feel that the recreational industry piggybacked the medical program and have pushed us down. And I'm, I'm going to keep breathing and keep advocating for you know medical knowledge, medical patients, and populations that deserve this research knowledge and deserve access to this plant. What did you think about the, you know, what the president said a couple of weeks back? I mean, months back. I mean, I, I, I like the idea that he's even talking about it, but even at that level, you know, they don't really look at this as medicine. They just look at this as another opportunity for a recreational drug. I think well, what I, most people don't understand is that I think anybody who gravitates towards cannabis instead of gravitating towards alcohol or other things are gravitating towards cannabis for a medical reason, even if they don't admit it themselves. You know, the idea of I want to relax, the idea I want to sleep better, the idea I want to, you know, ease my my tension. That's all a medical reason to me, even if you don't want to say it is. Well, and then you have the endocannabinoid system. It's a it's a system of the body that needs to be um, considered and nourished and activated and taken care of. You know, whether or not I want to get high, I still need to, you know, feed and take care of the endocannabinoid system as I would my vascular system. But 
my feeling is that, you know, back in the day, cannabis was widely used and then it became a pharmaceutical battle. I mean, there's all sorts of thoughts and theories as to why, but I think that cannabis is still schedule one because it's a threat. It will actually help people feel better, get well, and possibly deactivate some conditions that are pretty nasty. So I think there's a lot, it's a little bit more complex when it comes to what is cannabis going to do? What is plant medicine going to do to the pharmaceutical industry? If people are going more toward making their own medicine and growing their own and making their own remedies, you know, in comes now some talk in the media about how herbs and sea moss and things are going to be considered illegal because the FDA doesn't like it. Well, it's, it's, so it's, it's, it's a constant push between colonized science and colonized thinking and indigenous science and traditional medicine knowledge and, and the thinking behind healers. It's like the players in the industry aren't really willing to work together. It's an industry. So as long as they're thinking in industry framework, that's the direction that's going to go in. It. So it's still pushing an underground market, an underground way of knowing that here in Oregon, we're at least trying to bring it up to the surface and have it meet some of the industry where it's going to go, I don't, I honestly don't know, but where I want medical to go is to grow back from the underground and have a strong vital presence and voice in cannabis because everybody that's partying now with it is going to age and have conditions that will require them to do something, whether it be take a pharmaceutical drug or actually use cannabis. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, and now again, give out your website again so people can know where to go to, to find you. Uh, backdoormedicine.org. And I'm also on Instagram at Backdoor Medicine. Okay. All right. For sure. Look, I can't say thank you enough for being a part of the show today. I really appreciate it. And I think that, you know, you've given out a lot of good information for people to digest. And, um, you know, I hope you just can keep trugging on the way you yeah. are. Okay. Yep. That's what we do. <laughs> Absolutely. For sure. Um, I'm almost out of time. So anything else you want to add? Uh, just thank you for the opportunity. I think the, the biggest part of it is sharing the, the research knowledge that there are other ways to use and consume cannabis that can be highly beneficial, especially without a head high. And that's really the gift of a cannabis suppository is that it can take care of so much of the body without a head high. So elders and people who are really sick and suffering can find benefit. Absolutely, for sure. Thank you so much. And I'll make sure people, you know, want to find out as much as they can about you. And you're always welcome here, Paula, for sure. Okay. Thank you, Montel. Absolutely. You take care of yourself and be well. All right. All right. Okay. Bye. And thank you for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.